Thank you very much for the uh, generous uh, introduction. And I'm very pleased to be uh, uh, able to come here and, and speak to you. I've chosen the subject of nationalism and development in India for two uh, reasons. One, it's my area of expertise where I am in some degree of authority in what I'm saying. And secondly, I think that nationalism plays a very important role either in generating conflict or in regulation of conflict in the development process. So I thought by taking India as a kind of case study, I will be elaborating on the larger theme of the relationship between nationalism and uh, uh, development. Uh, in India, nationalism has been almost central to the conception of development and different stages of development of capitalism uh, in India. And Though there has been a transition, and it's a very important transition, which I will refer to you in, in the course of the lecture, but there is a continuity and, 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 and an overlapping theme of nationalism occurring again and again in the way the Indian elite looks upon development, conceptualizes development, and looks upon the future in terms of uh, uh, India's uh, development. Broadly speaking, it can be divided into three phases. The first phase is the period of colonial rule over India till India's independence in 1947, uh, roughly from the late 19th century uh, to, to 1947. Uh, in 1857, there was a, what is called spoil according to the British rules, but according to the Indians for the first bar of independence. After that, the, the British rule over India was formalized in 1858. Uh, so that's the first phase. The second phase is uh, roughly from the India, India independence till 1991. And uh, the third phase is from 1991 onwards. Now 1991 is important because neoliberal economic reforms were introduced in 1991. So I'll now speak about these three phases and see how nationalism has run through different uh, articulations, different forms, different manifestations in the way development has been perceived in, in India. In the first period, obviously the, the birth of nationalism was a direct reaction to the impact of colonial rule over India. By the late 19th century, it was becoming pretty clear that British rule over India was leading to deindustrialization of India, increasing uh, pressure on agriculture, and the first ever famines uh, in India took place during the uh, British rule. Uh, I won't go into the big theme of this, but very simply to say that part of the industrialization was that the native industry of India was destroyed because the exports from uh, Britain, which were highly subsidized by the colonial rulers. Uh, textile is, is one example. Uh, the, the Lancashire and the north of England uh, textile mills, they were given heavy subsidy. They were sold in India at a very low prices. And the local artisans, who were absolutely world-class artisans, they were destroyed in the course of uh, uh, competition. I mean, there's a legend that uh, 24 yards of muslin, which is a kind of very fine piece of cloth, yard is almost equal to a meter, could be put into one small box. That was the degree of quality of Indian artisans. And, and they were destroyed because they could not compete with these highly subsidized products which came from uh, Britain. But there are other stories of this. So this deindustrialization de leads to also deurbanization. Uh, there were some cities which were totally depopulated. Murshidabad is one city which is in Bangladesh now, which was a part of United India. One third of its population left the city, went back to the villages because they had no employment and, and income generating activities. 
which were destroyed by British uh, exported uh, uh, goods. Uh, so uh, pressure on agriculture increased, and, and that uh, led to, in fact, greater uh, agricultural misery. And the famines took place because uh, the British rule wanted Indians to, Indian farmers to produce commercial crops, and cash cropping led to decline in areas of food production. And the peasantry, which had learned over a long period of time to understand that during the period of good rainfall, you produce more and save for the period under the deep period, uh, they were barely able to produce enough food for their own self-consumption during periods of plenty uh, rainfall. So when uh, season came, when there was less rainfall, they did not have enough uh, uh, food rain left in the previous uh, period because instead of food rain, the area was being shifted to cotton, to indigo, which was fitting with the British colonial uh, uh, rule. So you might have some of you who do study uh, on, on third world or an underdevelopment come across the idea of dependency theory of uh, uh, development, which argues how development of one area was kind of linked with the underdevelopment of the other area. And Raimundo Frank uh, is very well known. Paul Graham was the first person who developed this thesis. There was a play of that theme in India that there was uh, the development of uh, British economy was leading to the underdevelopment of India. And the first kind of uh, economic nationalism came from this understanding that British rule is leading to drain of resources from India and therefore we need to defend our country, we need to have control over our resources. And this initial uh, kind of uh, insight uh, then became much more obvious when, the, when they could see that the periods of uh, a loosening of British control over Indian economy was also the period of mushrooming, mushrooming of Indian industry. For example, the First World War, when, when uh, British rule over India was weakened because Britain was engaged in the war, that, that is the period for the first growth of Indian industries in leather, in textiles, in paper, in cement. And then, you know, after the First World War, again the colonial rule was tightened and that led to the weakening of the Indian industry came the Great Depression of 1929-33, again Indian industry seemed to develop, and similarly around the Second World War. Out of this, number of Indian observers recognized that if weakening of British rule is leading to the development of the Indian industry and Indian economic development, then it might be a good idea that Britain goes away and we become independent country and we have our own independent states which will look upon our, our, our mode of development. So, though we give a lot of credit to Mahatma Gandhi for leading the uh, India's movement for independence, and there is a lot of good to say about him, but the basis of this idea of India's independence was led, was created by a number of economic theorists and, and economic historians who were able to see this long-term trend that British rule is thwarting India's development and throwing with this rule will unleash India's uh, development. So, nationalism was a product of this reaction against uh, British colonialism and nationalism at this, at this time was playing a progressive, historically progressive role uh, of constructing a new nation which then uses its own state to, to develop its own national perspective. So that's, that's the first phase. The second phase is from 1947 and probably till 1991, which was a period of Indian policy makers, Nehru was the first Prime Minister and Mahanobis was the main economist who developed India's plan development strategy. They were not inspired by the Soviet industrialization strategy. 
that a newly industrialized country needs to build up its infrastructure, it needs to build up its capital goods industry in order to build the consumption goods industry. So they, they, they thought of the planning, uh, five-year planning period as one mode of doing this and concentrating not on agriculture but on industry and, and building the basis for industrialization through import substitution. And the theme that was self-reliance, self-reliance both in agriculture as well as industry. In agriculture, it manifested in, in growing food because India was dependent on food, especially on America, and there was a massive food aid in India which kind of jeopardized India's national economy and national sovereignty, and America used food aid as a kind of <coughs> political-economic tool to pressurize uh, uh, India at, at crucial uh, events. And the Indian political leadership was able to see that if we do not have food self-sufficiency, we are always vulnerable to political controls from outside. So the, the strategy of green revolution that some of you might have come across, uh, which, mean, which meant applying the, the fertilizers, insecticides, irrigation, water, and high yielding seed varieties package to increase food output was introduced to increase to food output and through that increase in output to make India self-reliance in, in food. Similar strategy was employed in the industrial sector that India needs to have its own infrastructure. It needs to produce its steel, its electricity. It needs to have its own transport network. It should not be dependent on foreign imports. And that led to significant industrialization. And, 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 and one can see the comparison between India and Pakistan is very interesting. Pakistan did not pursue that policy of building. And that Pakistan has a very weak industrial base. I mean, you know, so much so that someone pointed out that even shaving blades, which doesn't require very, very, very sophisticated technology, was still being imported. And they didn't have the technology. But India had highly developed power plants, highly developed steel plants, coal machinery, and so on and so forth. So it paid off the idea of, of self-reliance and, and, and having national sovereignty and having economic basis to have that sovereignty resulted uh, in this developmental strategy. So nationalism again played a semi-progressive role in developing the uh, developmental model. Now obviously in this developmental model there was a conflict between the capitalist economy, uh, especially you know, it was a modern capitalist economy in, in post-Second World War uh, period after its independence, and there are there are sections of industrial uh, development class, there are sections of the landowning class and the working class peasantry, and obviously the interest of the peasantry and the working class were not taken into account because the emphasis was on aggregate development, not on uh, uh, distribution. Though one must add that Indian capitalist class is one of the most sophisticated capitalist class in the world. Uh, it, is, it has been led by very enlightened political leadership like Nehru, who studied in Oxford, Cambridge, or studied in Cambridge, not Oxford, who were influenced by Canadian socialism, who were influenced by Soviet strategy of development, who understood that there is a link between patterns of development and patterns of distribution, and they did try to pursue something called social justice. And it was given the name of socialism, which is actually a wrong understanding. And, and some people do believe that India had a socialist model of development from 1947 till 1991. And sometimes one finds very, you know, well-read and, 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 you know, sort of fairly sophisticated economists dubbing uh, India's model of development uh, from 47 to 1991 as socialist model of development. It was a socialist model of development. It was a model of capitalist development in which state played a very important role, in which public sector played a very important role. 
and the role of the public sector and the state was to facilitate the development of private industry. It wasn't to undermine private industry. It was to generate resources which could not be generated in, in the private sector. For example, if you have to build a dam, uh, the, the private industry did not have enough uh, financial outlay. They could not pay for 15, 20 years, and, and then the effective rate of profit is very low. State came into the picture. So state was laying the foundations uh, of that, but obviously it was the interest of the dominant classes which was served by that model of uh, 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 development. So from the first phase, which was clearly progressive, historically progressive, against colonialism, for the development of Indian economy, Indian national economy, the second phase is more fast, and the second phase is more uh, conflict-ridden, and where clearly one can see the sections of some sections of society who are gaining more from this. And then we come to the 1991 period. Now, 1991 period did not come suddenly. There was a trigger point. The trigger point was a huge balance of payment deficit, which led to going to IMF and World Bank, uh, which some of you who study IMF and World Bank would know about it, that IMF and World Bank intervened into the development process when a country comes into deep balance of payment deficit and they have to go to IMF and World Bank to borrow money and they impose those conditionalities. And, and they look for a period when there is also political change because when there is a continuous political rule, those people are already entrenched in political governance and they are less they are less kind of willing to accept the conditionalities. And in 1991, there was, there was a conjuncture in the Indian political economy where two things came together. One, India had a huge balance of payment deficit. Secondly, India had a change of government. And they suddenly found someone who was absolutely suited for that job, which is Dr. Manmohan Singh. He's not a relative of mine, but he comes from the same community. Uh, Sikh, uh, I have removed my turban and cut, cut my head, but he still keeps that. And he also studied in Oxford, so that's the only normal name. He was a bureaucrat, an economist. He was chosen as a finance minister. And that again is a very interesting theme that IMF and World Bank, it has happened in Turkey, it has happened in, in Pakistan. They choose an economist who has either worked in IMF and World Bank, who is close to their area of ideology. He was just picked up to make the finance minister. And many of you would know that he is now becoming India's uh, prime minister and a very influential world leader. He is technically very good, very, very competent economist, a man of integrity, no allegation of dishonesty, corruption, bribery, extra. So he fitted the role absolutely uh, in the best possible way anyone can fit in, in, in that role. And what happened? They, they dismantled the private sector or moved towards dismantling the private sector, freedom to foreign multinationals to enter India, liberalized the Indian economy, removed a lot of controls on mobility of capital, though still India has some, some, some controls. And in the last 20 years, India had had enormous economic growth, very, very impressive economic growth. Uh, most of you would be familiar with this uh, kind of idea that India and China are the emerging powers. And of course, India and China are the most well-known, but also the so-called BRICS economies, that is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and S for South Africa. Earlier used to be BRIC, and now they've added S to signify South Africa. That these five economies are having very impressive rates of economic growth. Now, with this economic growth, the nature of India's nationalist discourse is changing. 
and it's very important to capture that change which has taken place. What role is nationalism playing in this new phase in India's development? India from an underdeveloped, dependent economy is now merging into almost a sub-imperialist country. It is making huge investments in Africa. It is capturing some of the multinational cooperation team in this country. Gagua was one example which was captured by the Tatars and there were celebrations in India that the process of colonization is being reversed. That look, once upon a time we were taken over by British companies and now we are going to take over British companies. The Indian companies are very aggressive and Indians in terms of the billionaires are every year increasing. The, there is a new mentality, a new mindset which is developing in the, in, in the Indian elite that we are not a poor country. We are a powerful country and we need to be on the world stage as leaders, not as one of the, you know, several developing countries. Now, this is very important, how nationalism is being introduced into this discourse. It is national pride, it is national honor, and uh, we need to be expansionist, and expansionism is not viewed in a negative fashion. It's quite interesting that the same country and the same middle class which imposed which are kind of opposed imperialism, is quite happy for India to become imperialist country. When it goes and captures markets in Africa, buys large swaths of land for Indian agriculture and, and Indian industry, is quite ecstatic about this. And, and this is also manifested in the emphasis of militarism in India. That, that India also wants to be a very big military power. It's one of the biggest spenders of military expenditure in the world. And, and it, it is now almost recognized as a nuclear power. The uh, world has five nuclear powers who officially recognize and, and uh, India is one of them which is semi-officially recognized that it's not considered having nuclear weapons but it has it potentially they have conducted tests. And when the first uh, or the second most important nuclear test was conducted, there were celebrations in India. It was absolutely vulgar that you know that the bomb bomb making capacity should be celebrated as a great achievement which is a destructive potential. It wasn't increasing the standards of living of people. It wasn't removing poverty. It was celebration of the bomb making. And there were some Hindu fundamentalists who said that we will take the ashes of from that, that from Bangla all over the country to show that what a great country and what a great nation uh, we have become. So nationalism was now being brought into the discourse to celebrate another India. And India, which is not bothering about uh, opposing various taxation of other countries, uh, an India which claims itself to be a big power, uh, an India which is proud of its military power, and this has changed the nature of uh, nationalism, both externally as well as internally. Externally, I've already mentioned that this expansionist theme has become very important. They have wondered the old ideas that countries need to be independent, they need to be control of uh, external uh, imperialist control because India that's themselves itself doing that. Internally it has become very aggressive of aspirations of smaller nationalities. Uh, it does not allow any kind of dissent. Any hint of autonomy or secession is crossed very, very quickly. Uh, Kashmir is one example uh, in India, but northeast, the region of India I was born in, Punjab is one example which spent about 15 years in a, in a militant conflict which had many flaws but it was very brutally suppressed. Now the world has a very confusing picture about India. If you, if you ask an average person in the West 
What do you think about India? Still there are images of Mahatma Gandhi and peace and meditation and kind of, you know, happiness and, you know, all that kind of uh, stuff. And people go to India, you know, party of tourism, they go and meditate and, you know, it's very nice and peaceful place. Now, India does play lip service to Gandhi even now. But Gandhi is totally irrelevant in the present context. Okay? Indian ruling class is very clear that Gandhiism has no role to play. Gandhi stood for peaceful coexistence. He, he stood for non-violence. He stood for decentralized industrialization. He stood for development of village agriculture, self-sufficient agriculture. He stood for environmental protection. All that is being abandoned by the Indian ruling class. So that it's like China. Mao is still, you know, is a great figure, but everything what Mao wants to do is being undone by new Chinese elite. Similarly, the Indian elite is embarking on a discourse, uh, both internally as well as uh, externally, and a path of development which is totally anti-Ghanian uh, ideology. So there is a massive amount of conflict going on, going on in India, and I mentioned to you about the regional aspirations of. Uh, uh, different nationalities in India, and, and I'll, I'll kind of finally conclude by just making two other uh, observations. That I do not believe that India is one nation. I have written two books on this, and if anyone is interested, I, I'll give you my email address, and uh, I'll be happy to, you know, tell you about those books and also about other papers which I've written. I think India is a geographical space of many nationalities. Indian Constitution itself recognizes about 27 languages. And each one of those languages is not spoken by a few hundreds of thousands of people. It's spoken by millions of people. Okay? But India officially does not recognize those multiple nationalities. It, it tries to construct India as one nation. So therefore, anyone who articulates, whether they are Kashmiris or Tamils or Punjabis or, or Nagas or Mijos, uh, they are looked very suspiciously. And they are crushed very brutally. And they, the Indian ruling class is able to get support from its very aspiring middle class for this repression. That's one. The second is that you might have also come across news about Maoist conflict in India, that there is a very powerful Maoist, uh, also called Naxalite movement. Naxalite comes from an armed rebellion which took place in 1967 in a small village in West Bengal, uh, uh, that's in eastern India, where uh, a group of uh, peasants took over the land of Randolph to flee, and one Maoist tradition kind of said that this is the Indian path to the revolution, that you know the, the oppressed classes will take up arms, throw away the exploiters, and they liberate the rural areas, and then they took over the cities. Now this is too mechanical and simplistic, but the Maoists in India have now controlled a large swath of area, which is in the tribal forest area, where there has been a very high degree of exploitation and, and neglect. Large mining corporations are going there, Quite dispossessing the peasantry, and these Maoists are not uh, some you know, ragtag. These, these are students uh, who did engineering, who did medicine, and who were inspired by certain idealism. In fact, the idealism which led to India's independence. They think that this is not in, this is not India which we want. They sacrificed their careers and 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 gone into those forests, and they are leading that 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 struggle. And now there is a talk about Operation Green Hunt. Uh, which is about that, you know, we have to use army against these people. And my belief is that if the Indian ruling class does that, if it uses its armed might, its military might, to uproot, to crush the Nazis, 
the level of human rights violation will be so massive that not only India has never known, the world has never known. It will not be few hundreds and thousands of people who will be killed. It will be virtually hundreds of thousands of people who will be killed. Because they control thousands of acres of land and there are millions of people living in that area and, and they are pretty well armed. So again, and, and India wants to compete with the outside world, that we are, we are capable of managing. Now, as I said, that the Indian Prime Minister is a very sophisticated uh, political economist. What I'm saying, he is aware of all these discourses. He knows that that will lead to. So he's partly reluctant, and he knows that he does not want to live with this legacy that during his rule, hundreds and millions of people uh, were killed. He still believes in the trickle-down theory. That if you have massive economic growth, aggregate economic growth, eventually it trickles down to people. But that's not. India still has the largest concentration of poor people in the world, which many people forget when we talk about emerging countries and, and the new tigers, India and, and, and China, so and so forth. It has the largest concentration of poor people in the world. And as you know, the poverty in, in developing countries is bare minimum uh, subsistence uh, level. So to kind of uh, link up these uh, three phases, the, the first phase, which is against colonialism for India's independence. The second, from independence to 1991, and from 1991, introduction of neoliberal economic reforms and opening to the world economy. Nationalism has made a transition. Nationalism was progressive, historically progressive phase in, in, in opposition to colonial rule. It was asking for a state, which then uses it political uh, and, and managerial skills to initiate the development. In the second phase, it was more first. Self-reliance was the main theme. It was very important. But in the third phase, it is becoming a very reactionary ideology. Nationalism is, is a very reactionary and uh, retrogressive ideology. Uh, and Indian nationalism, therefore, has kind of metamorphosed from progressive ideology to a reactionary and a retrogressive ideology. I think I'll kind of conclude here.